Hey, I'm here with uh, Frank Dugan III, and Frank and I are this evening going to discuss uh, the work that Frank has researched and done, and in fact, more than that, he's put into practice and uh, on communion and the, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And I have to say that Frank has influenced me on this, that in the Forging Plowshares Fellowship, uh, that our understanding of communion uh, is partly derived from an understanding that I've gotten uh, from Frank. Uh, Frank, as you know, is uh, he's really does everything uh, that uh, is technical here at Forging Plowshares and uh, has uh, had his own house churches and is working now in Connecticut and is a key part of the Plowshares Network. So, uh, Frank, can you give us a bit of an introduction of where you're going to take us tonight? Yeah, uh, so as we all know, communion is one of the few universally practiced, it's hard to find a word for it, ceremony, ritual, superstition, doctrine, memorial, controversy, uh, but unilaterally all Christians practice this in some way or another whether it's once a year or every week or whatever. And uh, for it, it being a meal that represents unity, it's caused no shortage of disunity when it comes to the doctrine and the method of practice, the particulars. And uh, in, the, in the spirit of the Restoration Movement, uh, I kind of did some research trying to uncover what the, what the origins of this this uh, meal were, and uh, what would be an appropriate way to practice it today. What, so not just the theology or the doctrine of communion, uh, but why it happened in the first place, and why we continue to do it today, and how we do it, and how it affects our lives. So, the and, and already you're talking about it in a way that we may not be used to, and that is you've referred to it as a meal. Tell us why that particular language. Yeah, well, and immediately we'll start with some controversy, I suppose. Um, but I think you've already talked in your previous po uh, podcast quite a bit about um, atonement theory and uh, the Constantinian shift, and I think those things have everything to do with what we, how we interpret communion today. Uh, I think that an Anselmian atonement doctrine is central to our, our typical understanding of the significance of the body and the blood of Christ. And uh, the same thing as far as it, it no longer being considered a meal, uh, because that's the only reason for it, is, is that particular atonement theory. But the reason I, I want to emphasize meals, because I think scripturally speaking, if we look at all of the uh, few passages that talk about communion, it's always in the context of a meal. And uh, in the earliest Christian writings, in particular the Didache, it's also referred to very clearly as a meal there. Let, let, me, uh, let me back up a minute, Frank, and just make sure I've heard you correctly. You say, you're saying that Anselmian, the Anselmian doctrine of atonement has shifted our understanding as to the nature of communion. Yeah, well, with the caveat that you've given yourself, maybe that's an oversimplification, but certainly, uh, yes, the idea that the, you know, uh, the, the significance of the blood of Christ uh, in an Anselmian atonement view, I think, is is very much why we do communion the way we do today. 
And it is mistaken because, and that was a pause that uh, I was hoping you would finish. <laughs> okay. So, um, as far as, as an atonement theory, as far as uh, what we actually read in the New Testament and, and find about communion. Well, the practice. In other words, uh, maybe, maybe we need to go back then uh, to Exodus, and you're basing your interpretation, your understanding then. Uh, first of all, you want to get back to a biblical understanding, and you want to set aside then this Anselmian uh, notion of the meaning of the blood. Does that relate then back to Exodus 20? Sure. In all of the passages that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, where the, the bread and the wine is mentioned in conjunction with this, with this meal, all of those phrases, or I mean, all of those passages have the phrase, the blood of the covenant. And when I started researching that, I didn't think it was going to be that significant. But as I did, what I found was that the Old Testament has very, very few uh, places where those words occur together. Um, and, and actually, as far as blood and covenant being in the same verse at all, there's only three passages in the Old Testament. And of those three, there's really only one that makes sense uh, as being a reference here, and that is in Exodus 24. Now, what we have happening in Exodus 24 is uh, <clears throat> God gives Moses all the commandments and the ordinances for his covenant. God orders Moses to gather Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 uh, elders of Israel to the foot of the mountain. Moses writes down everything that God told him, and then he builds an altar with 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and then they make offerings to God. And uh, then what happens next is really important, I think. Moses takes half of the blood and he puts it in the basins, and half of the blood he dashes on the altar. He takes the Book of the Covenant, and in the hearing of the people, uh, now I'm quoting, they all said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now, to me, I mean, that, that is very significant for a number of reasons, not the least of which being that they actually sat in the presence of God, but just that the, the, the focus of the blood of the covenant there is the establishment of a new nation. They had the 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which there's 12 apostles, right, representing the 12 tribes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Jesus said, this is my, you know, the new covenant, right? So here, it's, it's so much, it's so clear that this is another, you know, to borrow Richard Hayes, uh, an echo. It, we get so caught up in the Passover because that's where Jesus decided to do this meal and when, but it's not just the Passover, it's the establishment of the covenant. It's when the elders and the representatives of the 12 tribes sat in the presence of God and ate and drank with him. And really, both Passover and this event 
in, in a more general sense, they match uh, not a sin sacrifice, but they match a Thanksgiving offering uh, or a, a, you know, a traditional ancient Near Eastern peace treaty, uh, where after making a covenant, you know, you, you participate in a meal together uh, in honor of it. And so the, the picture is then uh, a shift, and not necessarily a complete shift, or is it, away from, in other words, the notion in, in a Passover supper uh, that is primarily focused on a kind of negation of death uh, to a, you know, there, that here are the way that the Jews are constituted and here are the way that Christians are constituted as a people. Well, I, I don't think it completely obscures Passover. I don't think it was an accident that Jesus chose that time uh, <clears throat> and that, you know, that, that larger uh, ceremony to, to do this in. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, as, you know, as, as you've talked about before in, in, in an alternative to Anselm's atonement theory, it's not just about some future thing, right? And, and uh, Passover was in a very immediate it addressed a very immediate thing, and that was death was coming right now, right? It was at mm -hmm. the door. Mm -hmm. And and uh, so I don't think if we, you know, when we have an Anselmian view on these things and we think about the blood and the, the body of Christ, we're thinking about future judgment. But I think, you know, with, with uh, this covenant, with Passover, and with, with all the other things that may be reflected in this meal, uh, it's immediate. It's very immediate. It deals with the future as well because we have the hope of resurrection, and that's what happens after the cross. Uh, but what we have here is, is the addressing of how we're going to live now. What's the covenant for right now? Uh, how are we being rescued from the danger of now? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't say it fully eclipses Passover, but I do think we need to look at Passover very carefully to not make it something that it's not. Um, and, and it certainly is, you know... Uh, I do think it is a mistake to say that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be, you know, only celebrated on the Passover, because we have—I think—we have clear evidence in Acts and uh, and Corinthians that this was practiced whenever Christians gathered together, which uh, you may have been weekly and in some cases even daily. Mm -hmm. And so, is there a shift also then in that we kind of have limited the meaning of forgiveness? Uh, to a kind of Passover understanding that we, in fact, with the Lord's Supper, are sub celebrating a forgiveness, but it's a forgiveness that is immediately connected to entry into covenant relationship. Absolutely. I think if you there's one place to look for that for sure, and that is Ephesians chapter 2. The first half of Ephesians uh, chapter 2 is basically going over... Uh, all the things that the Gentiles missed out on, the, you know, the covenant faithfulness, the, the land of Israel, the, the blessings that would come with it, um, having God, having hope, you know, all of those things that were excluded from the Gentiles. And then the second half of chapter two talks about, but now through Christ, you have all those things you've been made into one. Uh, and he, he even uses the language through the body and the blood of Christ. You know, the dividing barrier has been broken down. Um, and, you know, there's peace, and the way that that chapter concludes is that 
all men are being built together to be the new temple, basically, the place for God's spirit to dwell. So I think, yeah, absolutely it's an immediate thing. And if you think, tons of New Testament scholars are talking about this now, uh, whether it's N.T. Wright or whoever, but, you know, the markers of, at the time of, you know, the Second Temple Judaism, the markers of, of being an Israelite were kind of reduced to uh, the food laws and, and uh, the Sabbath, circumcision, and, you know, genealogy. And uh, the food laws were, were, were one of the things that very much separated the Gentiles, uh, and we see that happening in Acts, you know, with Peter and Cornelius and uh, that being undone. And uh, then even later on, where Peter kind of fell back into that and Paul took him, uh, took some time to uh, put him in his place and get that corrected. Uh, because you couldn't be made unclean by what you ate. Uh, and you couldn't be with unclean people. That was uh, a very significant stigma between uh, the Israelites and the Gentiles. And I think to, to a certain degree, even though our culture is not quite the same today, uh, there is something significant about eating with people. I mean, you don't mm -hmm. generally sit down and eat, you know, if you're in a cafeteria at a school or if you're uh, at uh, some kind of food service, uh, you know, in a, in a corporate environment, you sit with the people that you associate with. You don't that sit you with want, strangers. Yeah, you want to eat with your friends. And, yeah. and that seems to be, in other words, I don't, I, I think that this was everything, it seems, for Paul in Galatians that he's saying that he had to rebuke the, you know, the Apostle Peter uh, in front of everybody because this issue is important enough that I think that Paul is saying if you're not going to eat uh, with the Gentiles, then what we've received as a new people in Christ is, is of no effect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Paul also addresses it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, that's one of the only passages we have outside of the Gospels that talks about practicing communion. And what he brings up is, of course, you don't have unity when you're eating together. You're, you're starting to divide, uh, you know, at least I think uh, the way that we can read that passage is, is probably a class distinction. You know, the, the wealthier people that had the ability to leave work early and come whenever they want to were... And the people who had to work the rest of the day couldn't come until later, and they sat at different tables, they ate different food, and they didn't have the unity. And Paul's saying, if you can't get the unity right, there's no point. It's not the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. So let's, uh, let's clarify then, just very briefly, in a kind of list sort of way, that what is the difference in what you're saying from... Uh, uh, the received understanding that we often in our in both our understanding and our practice. Okay, so I'll do a brief summary. Uh, one of the most enlightening things to me uh, was when when I was doing this research, I read a, an ecumenical work on communion. Right, so this was uh, you know a, a body of different writers and then an editor that was kind of trying to somehow pull together all the different views and just come to a, a unit, you know, some kind of kernel that we could all agree on. And uh, what really clarified the, the distinction between what I read as a biblical understanding of communion and what, uh, what tradition has developed was the Catholic, doc, uh, the Catholic doctrine of representation. Now, I'm sure almost all of our listens, listeners have heard of transubstantiation before. We know that was 
a big contention point uh, in the Ref in the Reformation movement. Uh, but the idea that um, you know, following from the idea of original sin in Catholic theology, uh, you know, you have sin from birth; it's original sin carried from Adam, uh, and then at baptism, original sin is cleansed. After baptism, all sin that happens after that point in your life uh, is cleansed from the literal application of the body and blood of Christ at Mass. So, and that's why last rites is so important to Catholics, for example. You know, any sin that they had accrued uh, since their last attendance of Mass, they could die with that, and that would extend their time in purgatory. Um, now, <clears throat> so, because the body and blood of Christ is used in Mass to address the problem of sin and 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 for and uh, you know to bring grace to bring forgiveness. Um, it was very important for it to actually be the body and blood of Christ. Now, um, <clears throat> what representation is, is is basically an understanding that uh, Christ is not continually being sacrificed. He's not continually on the cross, uh, but they still need that body and blood to be the body and blood. And so the way that they work this out is that. Uh, he has only died. He's only died and sacrificed once, but in heaven he is continually representing his work to the Father, and uh, and so it's the it's the same. You know, we have access to it in that way. But to hear it clearly spelled out like that, and to see the reasoning, it becomes a lot more obvious why this is following from Anselm's uh, uh, atonement model. That uh, you know, it's this infinite offense. And every offense after whatever got forgiven, you know, it becomes another infinite offense, and you continually need this infinite sacrifice to infinitely pay for it. Uh, and so that's why the, the blood is so important in that context. Now, if we move to the, the Reformation movement, what we have is not a complete rejection of that, but a slight tweaking of that, right? Uh, so Luther and Calvin, they're going to use the language that it's a, uh, you know, a, a sign of the body and the blood of Christ. They're still theologically um, focusing on the application of the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but now it's, this is just a symbol or a metaphor uh, rather than an actual reapplication. But what they're going to say is that spiritually it's still happening. Mm -hmm. And that's the in in a uh, the the notion uh, in a, in a Catholic understanding. Uh, explain just a little bit when we talk about the real presence of Christ. Well, uh, it, I think just in very simple terms, it's just that, that he, you know, he's really there. That is actually when, uh, you know, in the transubstantiation. So uh, in, in the real presence, they're using Aristotle, mm -hmm. uh, his notion of the, the accidents and the, uh, you know, the real and, um, sorry, sorry, the acidins and the forms. And what, what's happening is that the form changes to the form of Christ's body and blood, while the acidins, which is basically uh, all physically manifested evidence, remains the, blo the blood and the, or the, uh, the bread and the wine. So there is no physical way to tell a difference, but as far as the real essence, you know, the real essence has changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least uh, 
in what I read, that's how they generally explain that. And so real presence just meaning that, yes, this, this wine and this bread actually becomes Christ, and so Christ is really present. Uh, and, and it's for those reasons, because the, has, the, the presence of the body and the blood has to be brought to the Father within you. And you're saying that, in a sense, the, the Protestants, or in the Luther, uh, is not uh, uh, going far enough in offering an alternative to the notion of either real presence or the, uh, the notion. In other words, that, that what you're getting in a Lutheran understanding is that uh, it's still the same, uh, it's still functioning in the same way, but it is simply, uh, in some way, a symbol or a sign of something rather than a, the reality of, of uh, the body or the, the physical elements being turned into the body and blood of Christ. Right. Yeah, I, I would very much, yeah. And, and so to get to a different understanding, there's, there's quite a bit more groundwork that we have to lay. But I, I think... Um, you know, if we keep the Exodus 24 in mind, and we see that the, the blood is, it's, you know, it's part of this establishment of a new covenant, the greater context of that is, is the whole idea of a whole new covenant, a whole new people, a whole new system, uh, and, and just having a meal that commemorates and celebrates and begins that whole new kingdom thing, right? Uh, if we have that in mind, and now we can start looking at the whole thing differently, uh, and so... To start that, I think, for one thing, we have to look at what a Jewish understanding of atonement might have been. And to me, the best place to look at that is to, uh, to go back and look at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Um, so <clears throat> the Jewish scholar that I'm going to be referencing is uh, Jacob Milgram. And, uh, and I just want to be clear that, you know, he's not, he's probably, he's considered the foremost scholar on Leviticus. Uh, he's written massive volumes on, on uh, that topic. Uh, but he's not uncontroversial. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to try to present that all Jewish theology functions this way, but I do think he's qualified to say, and I, I agree with him. I think what he's saying makes sense. Um, so basically, in the Old Testament, there's three categories of sin. You have chet, which is inadvertent sin, and it's usually what we call, you know, missing the mark. And uh, that is committed by accident or due to ignorance of applicable law. The second type is avon. That's intentional sin. That's usually referred to in the Old Testament as crookedness, such as when uh, Nabal refused to return the kindness of King David and he denied, him the respons uh, he denied his own responsibility to be hospitable. A person could be tempted to commit avon by desire or by necessity. But the important distinction between Chet and Avon is premeditation. Then you have a third category, Pasha. That's demonstrative sin. This is rebellion. That's like Absalom rising up against his father, King David. Things like bloodshed, adultery, and idolatry fit in the category of Pasha. And uh, you also kind of consistently see Pasha uh, kindling God's wrath in the Old Testament. All right, so... Uh, the, the, you know, in the Jewish understanding, there's definitely, uh, there's, there's levels or types of sin, you know, depending on, you know, largely intent, but also ignorance and knowledge. But if there's one thing to make clear, uh, as far as something different between Judaism and, and Christian, you know, modern Christian theology, and probably 
probably most other religions, is that there's a distinction between cleanliness and sin. I think way too often, we, you know, as Christians, we generalize, you know, clean versus unclean and just equate that with sin. That's not how the Jewish theology works. Uh, to, be, to be unclean is not a moral judgment. A person with leprosy is unclean, but he's not unclean because he sinned. You can be unclean and not sin, but you cannot sin and be clean. Uh, so <clears throat> the idea is that when a sin is committed, it contaminates the person committing the sin, but more importantly, that sin of the person makes unclean the holy places and items and the entire nation. Uh, in, in, in this idea here, the entire nation bears the uncleanness of the people. And this is the key thing. Atonement, the, the Hebrew word kapara, it simply means to make clean. And as a verb, it only applies to a place. Atonement is not made on a person. It's only made on behalf of a person. And I think we really need to understand that in, in at least the Jewish literature, atonement is not a synonym of forgiveness. They're two different things. Okay? Now, when we look at Leviticus as a whole, Leviticus is really practical. We tend to think of it as this weird, strange thing that we want to stay far away from, and, and, it's, and uh, it's just full of all these weird laws that don't make any sense. But if we were, if we were to look for this, we would find that consistently... Leviticus is very practical, and the point of it is how to love your neighbors yourself. And, incidentally, that's what Jesus was quoting when he gave the second commandment. That was from Leviticus. The pattern that I've noticed a lot in, uh, in Leviticus is that um, when it comes to dealing with sin, uh, when you've got sin offerings and you've got all these different things, what you'll see is that if it's something you can repair, if it's something that can be undone, you know, whether it's thievery or uh, you lost an animal or killed an animal or whatever, you have to make amends with the person that you harmed first. Then you do the sacrifice and take care of the uncleanliness for God. You can't approach God if you didn't first make right with your neighbor. And I think the kind of the key idea of Leviticus is that to be right with God, you have to be right with your neighbor. And uh, you know, if we understood that, that could help mm. our theology quite a bit. <laughs> Which is there there in the communion that uh, that go and make things right with your, you know, if you have any offense. So clearly, you're referencing something that gets taken up then in the communion. Yeah, both both Jesus said that uh, when you know he said leave your gift at the altar and make things right with your brother, then come back. And then Paul in First Corinthians when he's addressing the problem there, yeah, and that's what that's what makes it unworthy. And and later on, if we get to the Didache, I think it there's a quote there that shows that same level of thinking. So we've got this idea of the law being about how to deal with what you know the harm that sin causes, right, and the uncleanness that sin causes. Now. The thing to note, though, is that uh, only chet, the unintentional sin, uh, could, be could be atoned for with those sacrifices. For the other, the, the Avana and Pasha, the only hope for forgiveness and atonement was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
just a brief summary of what happens in that event. First, you have the bull for the sin offering. It's brought to the high priest and it's ritually slaughtered. Then second, two identical male goats are brought to the priest. Third, lots are cast so that one goat is dedicated to the Lord and the other goat is dedicated to Azazel. Fourth, the goat to the Lord is slaughtered and its blood is mixed with that of the bull, the sin offering. Fifth, the mixed blood is carried to the Holy of Holies where it's spread on in front of the cover of the ark. Six, the other parts of the temple are also cleansed with this mixed blood. Seven, the goat for Azazel is presented, and the high priest lays his hands on the goat, confesses over it all the sins of Israel, including the Bashah. Eight, that goat is driven alive into the wilderness. Nine, the remains of the bull of the uh, sin offering and the goat to the Lord are ritually disposed of. And you're going to, and the, the uh, I'm sure you'll bring out many, many things, but one of the things that seems to be significant there is that, in fact, it is the goat that bears the sin that it remains alive and is driven into the wilderness. Absolutely. <laughs> and so the point here is that when it comes to atonement, making clean, that's what the blood does. That's what the goat that's killed does. The, the, the goat that... Um, is killed and the blood that's smeared makes the temple, the holy place, the nation clean. It re removes the stain of, of the uncleanliness from, from everything. Mm -hmm. But the forgiveness only comes by God accepting the goat. Now, uh, <clears throat> the, the understanding is that if the goat were to return, the sins would not be forgiven. God had rejected it. Uh, and uh, kind of the legend is that uh, they would uh, drive it over a cliff just to make sure that it wouldn't come back. <laughs> they didn't want that goat back. Yeah. yeah. So that's the scapegoat. And, of, and of course, mm -hmm. the sociologist uh, René Girard talks a lot about that, and I think he makes a lot of really good points. Uh, and that is basically that, you know, due to these problems of sin and shame and you know, there's uh, this unity that we have, these tensions that come up, and uh, it's either going to destroy us all or we find a singular target to put it on. And then we destroy that target. And then, uh, you know, everything can resolve. And, uh, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> he points out that uh, this is something that all cultures practice in their own way. And, uh, it, and it's you know it's a it's a destructive thing and and he points out that the Bible can, is consistently exposing that and I think here it kind of it's pretty clear I mean it's described what's happening here everybody knows they're putting mm. their sins on this goat that doesn't deserve it uh, and then of mm. course Rene Girard for him ultimately what Christ does is he exposes the scapegoat method right he's an innocent man mm -hmm. and he puts himself up there I, I think Rene Girard is right but it's more to it than just that. Right. Um, the point here is that, well, first of all, the resurrection, right? I mean, we can't forget that Christ does that. But also, beyond just exposing it, what we're really saying here, what this event really signifies, uh, both, both Christ on the cross and this goat being driven into the desert, is that God has the power to simply say, okay, I forgive you. He doesn't need this equation to be balanced. Uh, whether it's Anselm or it's C.S. Lewis, that uh, it's not God's not this mathematical equation. 
Uh, for him, justice is making things right. And in some cases, that's forgiveness. In some cases, that's, you know, uh, whatever. But the point is, he has the ability and the right to decide to forgive. That's his power. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need uh, blood to do it. Um, the blood is dealing with something entirely different than forgiveness. It's dealing with uncleanliness. And that could probably be a whole separate podcast on exactly what that may or may not mean. And that, so let's emphasize then that you've just distinguished that the goat that we're dealing with is not the slain goat, which is in concern with cleanliness or uncleanliness, but the goat that we're primarily concerned with is the one that's not slain. Yeah. Now, we can apply this in some very interesting ways. Um, for one thing, let's note, you know, we could say, well, Christ was both goats because he both died and resurrected. Uh, and I'm not going to necessarily disagree with that. But if we think back to that passage in Ephesians, if we think back to when Christ was talking to the Samaritan woman that a day was coming and is now here where you're not going to worship on that mountain or in the temple, but anywhere and everywhere. Well, what we have happening here, if we're following this, this uh, day of atonement, is that uh, the whole world has been made clean. Not just Israel, not just the temple, not just, not just for this year, but forever. The whole world is now the place of God's people. The whole world is now the place where his spirit can dwell. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think that's significant. Um, and uh, the next part of it, I think we really need to consider our role in the practice of forgiveness. Because uh, there's, there's lots of things that are... I don't think we've thought about as as Christians very much. And and one is how much emphasis Jesus put in his ministry that he had the power to forgive sins. And the way that he said it was the son of man has the power to forgive sins, right? Now I know that's a technical term, but I I, I do think he chose that particular term for a reason. But, you know, the man who is lame, you know, but so that you may know that the the son of man has the power to forgive sins, get up and walk, right? Um, he made a, a very strong point about that. And let's not forget that, you know, the wages of sin, of sin is death, right? And that's, uh, that's the punishment. So the cross, the resurrection, is a marker of forgiveness, right? And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that Jesus said to the disciples before he left was that uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, I think what he's talking about there is uh, that as his ambassadors, as his representatives who have God's Spirit in us, that we're to be taking up that ministry that Christ was doing before, and that is proclaiming God is willing to forgive you. I think we really, there, there's a, it's not like we don't have, God's okay to tell people that they're forgiven. <laughs> and I think that as his representatives right. and with his spirit, that we have the power to do that. You know, we speak on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the message mm -hmm. of the gospel that anyone can be forgiven. Paul was a murderer of Christians. Mm -hmm. He was forgiven, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if, we if we look at James, you know, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Uh, it's something that, you know, in our, in our, in our polar approach, you know, a pendulum swing to reacting to the corruption that we had in the medieval period, uh, you know, with, with purchased uh, forgiveness, 
that uh, we we forego participating in that process at all. And I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah, forgiveness should be free, but it's not something that just happens in your head. And, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer wrote in, um, in Life Together, how do I know that I'm forgiven unless I hear it from my brother? Mm. And I think he's right. Part of the, the comfort of having the church and, and fellowship with other Christians is, is being able to be reminded of the Word of God. And one of the most important things is that you're forgiven. And so is that then you're directly connecting this understanding <clears throat> that forgiveness and the shared forgiveness and the sharing in a communal meal uh, are, are all bound together then? Absolutely. So we come to this meal, and what we have to understand, you know, there, there's lots of different types of sacrifices. And there's, there's kind of a, a meta category, and that is the Thanksgiving offering. And there's lots of different specific types of Thanksgiving offerings. One of them is Passover. <laughs> and, um, mm -hmm. you know, but the, the basic concept is um, that God in some way saves you from some kind of uh, tragedy or, or threat of death, whether it's illness, robbery, war, a long journey, whatever. And out of gratefulness, you want to ascribe credit to God, and then you, you, you uh, go ahead and do this Thanksgiving offering. And uh, one of the earliest terms that we come to in the in you know christian writings outside the new testament to refer to communion is eucharist right which is of course the greek word for thanksgiving and that's not a mistake because i think you know passover itself being a very specific thanksgiving offering and then what jesus was doing it you know in, in echoing that covenant meal and i think in the way that paul's describing it in the in you know in first corinthians and uh, the way that early Christian literature describes this thing is that the you know what this meal is is a Thanksgiving offering. That's the tradition that's falling into, right? And in a Thanksgiving offering, the difference is that the real sacrifice. I mean, there's an animal that's being slayed, generally, um, but uh, what is really the subject matter of the sacrifice is actually the praise. That is what is really being offered to God. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting tradition in the Midrash, uh, you know, one of the Jewish uh, traditional writings, that uh, in the time of the Messiah, there'd be no need for sacrifices for sin, but the Thanksgiving offerings will continue to be offered forever. Hmm. And uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from the Didache here, uh, which, you know, we don't know exactly the origins or the exact date, but it does seem to be one of the earliest Christian writings. Uh, and uh, having read it several times, I, I find it pretty valuable myself. But uh, what it says is, On the Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread, give thanks, but first confess your sins that your sacrifice may be pure. However, let no one who is at odds with his brother come together with you until he is reconciled, so that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is what the Lord has said. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations. And in every place, incense is offered up to my name, 
in a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is reverenced among the nations. Now, I think having said all the things that we've talked about so far, that really makes it clear, you know, the, the, the kind of meal that they're talking about is a Thanksgiving offering. And of course, in the Didache, they do refer to it as the Eucharist. And so, and so your point being that, in fact, we've lost this point of a kind of joyful thanksgiving uh, rather than, uh, a, 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 you know, as being the point, uh, and it's been displaced by a more somber negativity. Yeah, uh, and I've, I can quote a little bit from uh, Alexander Campbell on this. <laughs> uh, he, he has said it far more, far more clearly than I ever could on my own. Uh, the way he says it is, much darkness and superstition are found in the minds and exhibit in the practice of the devout annual, semi-annual, and quarterly observations of the breaking of bread. They generally make a Jewish Passover of it. Some of them indeed make a Mount Sinai convocation of it. With all the bitterness of sorrow and gloominess of superstition, they convert it into a religious penance, accompanied with a morose piety and an awful affliction of soul and body, expressed in fasting, long prayers, and sad countenances on sundry days of humiliation, fasting, and preparation. And the only joy exhibited on the occasion is that it's all over, for which some of them appoint a day of thanksgiving. They rejoice that they have approached the very base of Mount Sinai unhurt by stone or dart. In the opposite degrees of their ascent to and descent from this preternatural solemnity, their piety is equal. In other words, they are just as pious one week or ten weeks after as they were one week to ten weeks before. If there be anything fitly called superstition in this day and age, this preeminently deserves the name. A volume would be by far too small to exhibit all the abuse of the sacred institution in the present age. And so Campbell is uh, agreeing with your understanding that, in fact, we've completely misconstrued the meaning of the Lord's Supper as a kind of blood sacrifice offered to God on a continual basis, when, in fact, what we really should be about is more of a Thanksgiving offerings praise. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure that he would... Uh you know, specifically compare it to a Thanksgiving offering in the Jewish sense, uh, but he definitely thinks of it as a thankful meal. I mean, he and, and a full meal at that. Now, I don't know if he ever really practiced it this way, but um, he, I mean, he goes on to say that, you know, he's speaking of Jesus, um, he keeps no dry lodgings for the saints, no empty house for his friends. He never bade his house assemble, but to eat and drink with him. His generous and philanthropic heart has never sent his disciples hungry away. He did not assemble them to weep, wail, and starve with him. No, he commands them to rejoice always and bids them to eat and drink abundantly. And then, uh, you know, he goes on to say even more, the Christian is a man. He has the feelings of a man. He has a taste for society, but it's a society of kindred minds. The religion of Jesus Christ is a religion for men, for rational, for social, for grateful beings. It has its feasts and its joys and its ecstasies too. The Lord's house is his banqueting place and the Lord's day his weekly festival. And then what he says next is really interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, just kind of thinking back to the sacramental view, the Anselmian view, uh, he says, but a sacramental, an annual sacrament or a quarterly sacrament is like the oath of a Roman soldier from which it derives its name. It's often taken with reluctance and kept with bad faith. It's as sad as a funeral parade. The knell of the parish bell that summons the mourners to the house of sorrow 
and the token that awakens the recollection of a sacramental morn are heard with equal dismay and co aversion. The seldomer they occur, the better. <laughs> but it's, uh, that, that, yeah, I mean, that does sound like Campbell at least is, is headed in the direction you are. And, and can, you, can you lay this out for us then? What is it that you think both Catholicism and Protestantism has gotten wrong here? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, there's, there's some historical argument about what came first. Was it the, the Emil? Was it the, this spiritual understanding? Was it, you know, the theology of this or that come first? And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of argument about that. And to me, I, I just want to push that all away because it, it's mostly based on redaction criticism and not any kind of real literature. Uh, not to say that redaction criticism isn't useful, but if we just push aside all the chatter that we've had over the years, largely due to, I think, just theological tradition, what I think we see happening in the New Testament and in, in the Didache especially that is missed in both Catholic, understand, uh, Catholic understanding and Protestant understanding is, is that what we have presented to us is a time where we come together to eat a meal as a new people and what we are commemorating the the event that we are thankful for is the consummate event of the work of christ and the establishment of the kingdom of god and that involves everything our becoming a new people in the new israel uh, the forgiveness of sin the the gift of the holy spirit the hope of resurrection the possibility of reconciliation the reality of the kingdom now the reality that's to come and so what are we saved from what are we what is this what are we being thankful for everything everything that christ has done everything that he did in the past mm -hmm. everything he's doing right now and everything he's going to do in the future the the really what it's all about is a whole new kingdom that we're a part of and every time we come together and talking about just what what the assembly even is in general and how communion plays a part in it is that whenever christians get together uh, what they're going to care about is prayer, having this meal to remember what they are as a people, and talking about you know the teaching. Mm -hmm. And aside from that, what they're going to be doing is practically applying all of those things. Mm -hmm. So that uh, and and then it becomes important that it is a something on the order of a love feast, a fellowship meal a meal around which koinonia in some you know ordinary sense of the term that we get together and we celebrate uh as as we would with uh that the meal then uh is necessarily the in many ways the 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 necessary in that uh it is a time of love and feasting and thanksgiving yeah i mean and, and and even that itself is an opportunity for those who are who are poor to eat better than they would any other time that week, you know. And you know that's kind of what Paul was hoping for in in Corinthians, and that's not what was delivering. So uh, yeah, I mean, it really is a chance for us to all come together as a people. And uh, in our in our uh, when I was when I was still living in Missouri, right next right down the street from you. Uh, we had a little house church there, and and uh, one of the one of the regulars was uh, Ivan uh, Ivan Thomas, who uh, you know well, and uh, 
one time when we were kind of reflecting on this during one of our meals, he said, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't want any of you in my house. <laughs> You're nothing like me. <laughs> and, and I think that's exactly right. You know, uh, all the people that I've, I've, uh, have come to be the most significant people in my life are people I never would have met outside of having that common ground. Mm-hmm. And is that connected then with what Paul means in Corinthians? When he says that you need to recognize the body of the Lord. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That the danger is that you're not going to recognize that this is your brother on your right, your sister on your left, and that the body is constituted by this koinony of fellowship. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly Paul's point. In other words, the point is not, oh, you didn't look at the little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and recognize that it's going to transform itself into the you know the essence of the body and blood of Christ. No, Paul's point is you're not recognizing uh, and honoring then uh, the fellowship of the saints that occurs around this joyous Thanksgiving meal. Yeah, no, I I think uh, really I think to put it even more strongly than that that. Uh, hypocrisy of not loving your man and then coming to God and expecting to have fellowship with him is uh, un. I mean if you want to talk about something that will kindle God's wrath that's it I mean the the parable of uh, you know the servant that owed a small sum and was forgiven and then you know went out and and beat uh, uh, beat his fellow servant for a very small amount of money uh, and God or, well, the uh, you know the master in the parable uh, took him and threw him in for for in for prison and torture until he could pay off his entire large debt. You know, and I think we really need to pay attention to that parable because I don't think God will tolerate a lack of love in us when we come together. I, Jesus was very clear, and Paul's very clear. You make things right with your brother before you come into the presence of God and the fellowship of others. It, it just won't work. The kingdom of God is about forgiveness, reconciliation, and unity. You can't, you, you can't lack that and be in the kingdom of God. And, and sometimes you might, need, you might need your brothers and sisters to help you work through that, but you have to be working at it. Mm-hmm. And so the, to imagine that Christ is present in some sacramental way, in spite of the hatred you may have for your brother, is a kind of it is a kind of uh, you know uh, a mis misunderstanding entirely of the meaning of the communion. Yeah, that that the whole point is no that where there is an agape fellowship, I am there among you. Where two or three are gathered together, uh, I am there in your midst. And there is the real presence, not a presence in physical elements of bread and wine, but a presence represented in a fellowship uh, celebrated in a meal. Yeah, yeah. And then let's let's summarize then <clears throat> that what is happening then in regard to blood sacrifice. As far as during during our fellowship or yeah is that how is 
Is that? Yeah, I don't. I don't think much is happening at all. <laughs> I think that work was already done two thousand years ago. That we don't need to continue that. Yeah. No. I. I think. And really, I don't. I don't know that we need to. I mean, we we need to. You know, obviously, be thankful to Christ for what He did. But I mean, He got off the cross, right? I don't think we need to focus that much on His suffering. It wasn't that He suffered. You know, this uh, suffering beyond what anyone else could suffer, which is kind of the logic that you're led to in Anselmian theory. Like, you know, well, maybe his spiritual suffering was more intense than anyone else could experience because it had to be the most severe punishment, you know. And, and it's just not about it. It's just not what it's about. If we, uh, if, if we still are sitting there either uh, feeling sorry for a victorious king or uh, sitting there feeling sorry for ourselves because we caused him pain. Uh, I mean, he had a very brief moment of sorrow, you know, in that, that evening, mm -hmm. and he still pushed through it. And, and that's just because he knew it was coming. He, he didn't mm -hmm. dwell in that sorrow. He, he did it because he was seeking victory, and he achieved it. And I don't think he necessarily mm -hmm. wants us to dwell on that so much. I mean, yeah, appreciate it for what it is, and appreciate it on, on account of... We are going to be called to do the exact same thing. We are called to pick up our crosses and carry them and follow him in that way. And as we're dealing, you know, because <clears throat> uh, to follow up what I said earlier with the scapegoat, if we're his body and we're, his, you know, his hands and feet and we're his ambassadors and all that and his spirits in us and we're to be uh, witnesses to what he had done and following him in his walk, then that's going to involve us sacrificing ourselves in the same way because we're going to be addressing the sin that's in the world and we're going to be like that scapegoat bearing the weight of the sin of the world <clears throat> is there then the sense that the making clean is direct in other words what's unclean violence is unclean uh the sacrifice of my brother for myself is unclean that precisely what the sacrifice is undoing is the uncleanliness of murder, violence, and sin. And that is undone then because of our own institution or taking up of the cross of Christ. Well, I mean, I, I can't say that I fully understand exactly how the mechanics of it work, but the kind of the way I envision it is that the, what you have in the moment of the cross Whatever and why ever blood is significant for this making things clean. I think that in the moment of the cross, what we have there is that that's the moment everything is deemed clean. There is no longer any unclean. And the significance of that, Israel witnessed the Spirit of God leave the temple. And they were waiting for it to come back. right? And it never came back to the temple. Where it came back to was the upper room. And I think... You know, the significances of us being the temple now, right? That's what we get from Ephesians 2 and plenty mm -hmm. of other verses. No mm -hmm. longer needing the temple. Mm -hmm. That uh, the reason that's a possibility is because everything has been made clean. Everything is from now on, fr from cross on, has been declared clean. The work mm -hmm. that's continuing is continuing the application and the practice of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Because that's something that's going to continually need to happen. We're going to constantly have to remind people that God is offering forgiveness. We're going to have to constantly 
speak it on his behalf. We're going to have to constantly apply it to ourselves. As, as with the, uh, the Levitical law, uh, I think part of what Christ did and part of what we're going to continue to be doing is uh, giving of ourselves, risking our lives and risking everything we own for the purpose of making right other people's wrongs. That's what it means to be bearing the weight of sin, and that's what it means to be walking the walk of Christ, and that's what it means to be practicing forgiveness. <clears throat> to end in a kind of conclusion, then, describe uh, how you, in your house church, uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper and how you think we should celebrate it. Well, I don't want to make it too formulaic, but uh, what, I, what I would say is that um, it, it, it doesn't need to be very uh, ceremonial, but it should be focused, right? I mean, we should understand that the reason we're eating is uh, is because of, you know, that we're, that we're in the kingdom of God, that we're uh, being thankful for the work that Christ has done, and now we're getting our hands dirty living in that kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> the way that we did it uh, would generally be that uh, as the meal was just about ready to eat, We'd spend maybe five or ten, maybe twenty minutes, depending how long we did I or the other leader was at the moment, just talking about that, talking about uh, you know the the things that I've mentioned already, or talking about the kingdom of God, or talking about something mm -hmm. usually relevant to what was going on in, with the group at that time, uh, and then we ate and we kind of made it a point, you know, to to be thankful and to be you know have. Um, intentional conversations about the kingdom of God while we were eating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we would uh, emphasize, you know, remembering body and blood of Christ with, you know, a toast or something like that, but uh, not necessarily always. And I don't, I mean, I think that that's a good thing to do because it, it does seem like uh, there, there could be, you know, the encouragement in, in the scriptures to do that, you know, to specifically have kind of that, that moment there. Uh, but I think the danger is, because of what it means to us in our tradition, we will abuse the meaning of it. And, and that's, uh, mm -hmm. I think if we do that, we'd be very careful not to make it into the quiet, solemn, pensive tradition. Mm -hmm. For us, the body and the blood of Christ means victory and, and uh, empowerment. That here the body has been, there is a new people, a new kingdom, and we're, uh, it is a kind of celebration of this uh, pointing to the final celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah, and, and maybe it's helpful if we, instead of thinking about, you know, uh, blood and body of Christ as sacrifice, uh, but to, you know, in the context of this meal, to think about it as, you know, body, that's us, and blood being life, you know. Um, what mm -hmm. we're celebrating is is uh, the community and the life of it. And that it's it's the true, you know, in following Christ, it's true life. It's, you know, the kind of life that you don't get anywhere else. Now, let me say something. Everything I say, as you know, needs probably correction. And uh, that, I mean, there is the understanding, and Bonhoeffer repeats this, but it's an understanding that I think could be misconstrued. But in the way that you've described it, I think that we could say uh, that the incarnation of Christ is understood then to be continued through the body of Christ. And what we mean by the body is this group celebrating this new koinonia fellowship. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. And um, I don't, 
yeah, the celebration and the the fellowship is not limited to, you know, just when we all come together in this particular way. Uh, but I think it, it, you know, it bursts out of this into the daily life, right? I, I think more than anything, what we have to be careful about is creating a dichotomy between the time that we have together and the time that we do everything else. Uh, really, everything we do should be uh, for the kingdom of God, you know, and and it doesn't mean always saying Jesus every sentence or something, you know, pietistic like that. But what it does mean is that your motivation and the reason and your goal in doing everything is to forward the kingdom of God, which does not mean, you know, kind of what I think we traditionally mean is, is uh, you know, trying to, to always convert everybody, but that what we're, what we're working towards is bearing witness to the kingdom of God, you know, proving in our daily life that it's real and, and uh, mm -hmm. inviting people to join. Mm -hmm. And that this kingdom then is, uh, 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 what you're describing is it's on an order of Israel being constituted as a people and all of the things that go with that literal constitution then in Exodus 24 is being carried over and applied to the people uh, com coming together in the name of Christ. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that uh, that's an accurate summary. Frank, it's been uh, wonderful. Let's continue this conversation in the future. Uh, but uh, this is exciting stuff, and I'm, I'm so glad that uh, you've been able to do this research and to bring this to us. Yeah, well, thank you, Paul. It's, it's a good opportunity, and talking about it's always easier than writing about it, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> That's my theory, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, but, but with that said... Uh, you know, this is this is based on two research papers, and um, over the past year or so, I've been kind of rewriting them into ten-minute devotionals, small digestible topics, and uh, I, I do eventually hope to polish them up a little bit so that they're you know uh, ready for for publishing, and maybe even recombining them into a new a new uh, article that kind of really pulls all this together. Um, but I think what I'm, what I'm going to do when we, we eventually post this podcast is I'll put several links in the description uh, to a lot of the material that I've quoted and referenced. Because uh, my research, there's really nothing new in what I've said. It's just obscure. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe the only thing that's kind of original, I have not encountered anyone talking about Ephesians 2 in relation to communion, but mm -hmm. I just might not have found it. So to the listeners, if anybody does know of anybody writing about that, I would be happy to know about it. So feel free to comment on that. And of course, we're hoping that when you do get this, get the uh, devotionals or the understanding written out, that uh, will they be posted on the Plowshares website? Yeah, sure. And so we can uh, have that available to everybody. All right. Thank you, Frank. Thank you.